Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Lux mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello to our fellow royal lovers and welcome to Royally Us. I'm Christina and that is Christina Ross, officially our new co-host of Royally Us. We're so excited to officially have you on board, Christine. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be running down the royal news with you each and every week. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I've had this has been so much fun. Um, I'm just so excited to be on board. Definitely. And I know our viewers absolutely love you and you bring such a great insight and perspective to the royal family. And I know that you're soon going to be moving across the pond. So you will be boots on the ground in London. (laughs) I will. I will be there doing, you know, the good work. (laughs) Definitely. Well, we can't wait. And we're so excited, like I said, to have you on board. It's going to be a lot of fun. Well, thanks so much. I'm excited to dive in. All right, let's get right to it. But before we get to all of our royal news, let's check in on with our viewers and see what they said about last week's show. Kicking it off with Libby Erickson says, I was so excited to see Spencer, but unfortunately left the theater feeling disappointed. Kristen Stewart delivered a great cinematic performance, but the overall narrative was a poor portrayal of Diana. I felt they made her seem crazy and the ghost of Anne Boylan haunting her was so over the top. Definitely felt like it insinuated the royal family having something to do with her death. I wish there was a movie that focused more on Diana's strength and ability to prevail through. I still have yet to see it. I've just been a little busy, but um, I mean, that was kind of echoing what Stuart Pierce said last week that it was hard for him to kind of connect to the movie, but it is getting overall great reviews. I've heard that so many people have said Kristen Stewart is so magnificent in the role, but the movie overall is a bit bizarre. So I think yeah. Libby really echoes what a lot of Royal watchers are saying, but I think Libby's right. We need a film that really focuses on Diana's strengths rather than the tragedies that kind of befell her. Totally. I couldn't agree with you more. All right. Next one goes to Angelie says, thank you for defending the queen. She was not cold to Diana and everyone only got one side of the story. The queen and Philip were on Diana's side and not Charles. If you do your research, she was a brilliant grandmother to William and Harry when Diana died and tried to protect them. The queen is always seen as cold and it's so unfair to her legacy. Um, This was, you know, I was talking last week about the queen and Diana's uh, relationship. And, you know, obviously she got a lot of blowback about how she handled Diana's death um, in the in the in the days following how she stayed up at Balmoral and didn't really, you know, come to um, Buckingham Palace where everybody was mourning uh, Diana's death. But, you know, a lot of people said that she was just trying to kind of hold down the fort for William and Harry. Yeah, I think it's it is important to note, you know, that 
she was doing things that maybe she felt were more important and you know her grandchildren are just clearly such a high priority for her yeah Yeah, definitely all right well let's uh continue talking about queen elizabeth and get it into our royal roundup and obviously she missed remembrance day service after spraining her back buckingham palace said in a statement the queen having sprained her back has decided this morning with great regret that she will not be able to attend today's remembrance sunday service at the center path uh her majesty is disappointed that she will miss the service um this was you know as of i think last thursday they said that she was going to be in attendance but having sprained her back she sat with that one out um Obviously, a lot of people are like, oh, her health must be worse than they're actually saying. Um, but, you know, it seems like hopefully she's on the mend. I I definitely hope so. I'm sure she's so frustrated because mm-hmm. if the if what the palace is reporting is true, which I think it probably is, you know, she was probably feeling better. And then maybe she sat up too quickly and then, you know, all of her plans were ruined. So I'm sure she's so frustrated. But um prince charles has said she's doing okay boris johnson has said that she's in good spirits and she's doing well so we have to trust that you know this is just a really frustrating time for her um this is only the sixth time in 70 plus years that she's missed remembrance day two of those were when she was very pregnant with prince edward and prince andrew but four of those she was on royal tours and usually on royal tours they will still attend a remembrance ceremony just Mm -hmm. wherever they are so this is such a high priority in her royal calendar she must be devastated and really must be in a lot of discomfort to have missed it i know i know i yeah you can i'm sure you can everybody probably in the palace walls is like uh, you could feel her frustration (laughs) because she just wants to get out there and you know she's missed a lot of uh, events over the past couple weeks she has done some virtual things here and there um but hopefully she's uh kind of laying low letting her back heal and we'll see her out and about soon enough and you know the royal family was still in attendance at remembrance day with prince charles laying a wreath on behalf of the queen uh william was there um kate the duchess uh, of cornwall everybody kind of stepped out and um you know was uh, representing the royal family yeah, it was great. It's such a it's such a poignant event. Every year they all come out. This is clearly so important to them as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great to see all the royals. You know, it, it's very um, consistent and it's very, um, I think, heartwarming to see how important this is to them. But the Duchess of Cambridge was there in an Alexander McQueen coat. She looked um, incredible and it was really poignant that she was front and center, standing in the middle of the Duchess of Cornwall. And I think um, the Countess of Wessex was next to her. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really put her front and center. And I think that really sends a message to, to the public that you know, she is such an important person um, in the dynamic of the royal family. So, but it was great to see all of them. Prince William, as he always is, was down by the cenotaph laying a wreath. Um, and it's just such a moving day. You can always see everyone is so emotional. Oh, definitely. And you mentioned she wore an Alexander McQueen jacket. She actually wore the same one to the event a few years ago as well. And it's one of my, fa- it's one of my favorite looks on her. I think she looks fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes, agreed. I love it. I love it. Um, Well, in the midst of all this, Prince Charles celebrated his 73rd birthday this week, and he got some well wishes from the royal family. Like always, they always give a little shout out on social media to all everybody that's always celebrating a birthday. Yes, I think this is so cute. They posted such a handsome photo. And I wonder, do they get to choose the photo that's posted? You know, like, do they get to choose the one? I would imagine. I feel like they probably would. (laughs) Yeah. So it was great to see on Instagram, I think Twitter and Facebook as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. They um, then... 
Clarence House posted a, a never before seen portrait of Prince Charles as well. So uh, definitely, I'm sure he was well celebrated. So that's good. Yeah. Celebrating his 73rd birthday. Pretty fantastic. And while Prince Charles celebrates his birthday week, Meghan Markle is celebrating her return to a daytime talk show. She made a surprise appearance on Ellen and talked about her life pre-Royals. And so I had this very, very old Ford Explorer Sport. And at a certain point, the, the key stopped working on the driver's side. So you couldn't get yourself in through the door. So after auditions, I would park at the back of the parking lot and I would open the trunk and climb in and then pull it shut behind me and crawl over all my seats to get out. That's how I would come to and fro. <laughs> oh my God. I know, so it was not Did ideal. anyone ever see, I know you parked far away, but did anyone ever see you climb through a trunk? No, get... no, I would play it off. I would go like, oh, I'm just looking for my resume and my highlighters for my script. Oh, maybe it's back there. And, and then, then crawl all the way Oh my God. Well, it's nice to see Megan remembering her roots and returning to daytime talk show. We know that she and Ellen have a longtime friendship. So I'm sure that she, that making her return, this definitely felt like a comfortable space for her. Now, Megan has been very busy lately. She and Prince Harry stepped out at a veterans gala last week in New York City. And this comes as she is battling out in court with the British tabloids. This week, um, text messages and emails were revealed, and it seems like this case is just really getting started, and a lot of bombshell revelations were made. Yeah, I think that this revealed a lot of what was going on behind the scenes during Meghan's tenure within the royal family, and I'm not sure it was really representative of her in the best light. She did make a heartfelt apology saying, I'm sorry I didn't remember these. I did not mis mean to mislead the court, but realistically, it was almost 30 pages worth of emails that she had forgotten. So it will be so interesting to see how this plays out. Um, the messages really said they indicated that, you know, Megan and Harry were very well informed about the Finding Freedom book and were even guiding aides on what stories to tell, what to clarify, you know, who to talk to so that they were represented in the best light. So when Megan and Harry, you know, made a statement that they had nothing to do with that book, that wasn't entirely true. There were several other things related to the letter with her father that really led us to know how specific she was in the wording that she used and how she wrote this letter. She wrote the letter knowing that it might be published. And I think maybe she just knew how her father was acting mm -hmm. and knew the choices he was making and said, listen, this might be inevitable. So if I write this letter, I need to know that it could end up in the hands of the papers. Right. So she did things like she never ended a page on a sentence so that the story couldn't be, you know, edited in a certain way. And she called him daddy so that it, it was more endearing to the public. And all of these things were revealed um, in these emails and really changed the way a lot of people saw the situation. And it, there hasn't been a final ruling yet on whether this appeal will be um, you know, granted or overturned, but it, it does look like an interesting turn of events from the original story. Oh yeah, definitely. And she also says, um, you know, by taking the form of action and, you know, she was doing this to protect her husband from the constant berating that he was getting from the Royal family as well. Um, she was saying how like the Royal family didn't really understand by that writing this letter was going to stop her father. Um, so, you know, like she said, she was that the royal family was constantly berating Harry to just get uh, Thomas Markle to stop. And she felt like this was the way to do so. Right. I think that, you know, the royals definitely don't like when close friends and family are spilling secrets to the media. And I think they were probably saying, can you do anything? And I think right. Meghan knew that nothing was going to work. 
Yeah. But she wrote the letter just to say, look, I tried. <laughs> right. Look, I tried. Yeah. Because it, she said that Harry was in a lot of pain over this. Um, but yeah, like you said, 30 pages of emails and text messages that she forgot doesn't really put her in the best light in this whole situation. And um, no, I don't think it does. It it definitely doesn't. And, you know, especially when they said so much about how they were not involved in finding freedom at all. And, uh, you know, that come to light too. It's kind of, it's kind of hard to, I'm sure for a lot of Royal viewers, followers to, to trust them in these situations now. Right. I think it's so, you know, it it is so difficult. Now we're really questioning everything that's being said and, Mm -hmm. I think what will in what will become more interesting is that Jason Nalf was heading that um, bullying inquiry in regards to the Duchess of Sussex's team. And if he's provided this much content and information so far, how much more does he have? And hopefully those allegations are not true because that would be really terrible. Mm-hmm. But only time will tell. Yeah, only time will tell. I feel like this is just getting started, unfortunately. Definitely not a definitely not a big win for Megan in this book. And like you said, the uh, the ruling hasn't come through yet, but once it does, well, of course, we'll update everybody and be on top of this story. But um in more Prince Harry news, he is actually claiming that he warned Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey about the January 6th attack on the Capitol. I find like this is very interesting too, because Harry's been speaking out a lot um with over the course. I mean, he's been speaking a lot about this in general, but over the course of the past couple of weeks about how the media takes um, liberty on stories and, you know, they kind of fuel these uh, fuel, the, fuel the fires when it comes to stories about especially with Megan and with Megxit and everything like that. And now he kind of said that he warned uh, Jack Dorsey about about Twitter's power and how it almost started this riot pretty much. Yeah, he was speaking um, at the Internet Lie Machine panel, which was hosted by the magazine Wired. And he said that he had been emailing back and forth with Jack Dorsey. And he said, listen, this coup is being staged on your platform. Are you, you know, what can we do about this? Or how are we going to change things moving forward? The coup occurred and Jack Dorsey never emailed him back. So I mm. thought that that was a very interesting part of this story that he does point out that they were going back and forth and all of a sudden Jack ghosted him and I think Harry has been so passionate about talking about internet safety and how there probably does need to be some level of recourse or responsibility on the platforms he's spoken openly about the term megxit which Mm -hmm. he claimed which he um, titles misogynistic which it very much is and he is I think Harry knows more than we think he does because he said that the term Megxit was created by a troll on Twitter and was then picked up by the media. And he's correct. That term came from a really vile group of people on Twitter that um, said some pretty horrific things, Mm. but there was no level of recourse to report them or have their accounts monitored. And then the media picked up this really disgusting term. And now it's, you know, used all over the yeah. place yeah it spread like wildfire it really did and yeah, there's, no it did. There's, no, there's no recourse there's no punishment and you know the, the, there's really it's very hard to silence all, all these trolls it really is right right oh yes so frustrating i can't imagine being in, the, in those types of situations i really can't <sighs> <laughs> Hope right. we don't find ourselves there. <laughs> Seriously, I know, I know. All right, well, now it is time to spill the royal tea, and The Crown is currently filming this uh, season five of the show, and they are doing it in close proximity to Prince William. Actress Elizabeth Debicki was spotted sporting Diana's uh, infamous revenge dress 
but it was kind of on royal territory. I found this, that this was pretty interesting. I thought this was so interesting and just, I don't know if it was really good planning or really right. bad planning. They filmed the, you know, stepping out of the car in the revenge dress and the exact spot in which it happened. But uh, unfortunately that was on Kensington Palace grounds in the park right outside Prince William's bedroom window, essentially. And he wasn't home, so he didn't see this. But I imagine it would have been a bit bizarre and upsetting to look out the window and see someone who looks so much like your mother. Right, like the ghost of your mom. Like it's, it's that had to, that would probably be very disturbing, I would imagine. Yes, I think so. And this was what the scene, the season that they're filming and what they're focusing on is such a difficult, tumultuous time for the royal family, especially for Diana. I imagine that this is going to be really difficult for these stories to be, you know, reopened in the public eye for William and Harry. William has publicly pretty much begged the media not to run the um, panorama interview ever again. Mm -hmm. You know, please don't publicize this. It's it's, you know, it's all falsehoods. She was forced into it. And it looks like the crown is still going to reopen that story as well. Mm -hmm. So although the royals have generally said that we don't watch the crown, but I'm sure it's interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, I think they are used to people portraying them in the media. This time period has been really difficult. And William and Harry have both really asked people not to keep opening those wounds. And mm -hmm. yet I think the crown is going to do it again. Yeah, it definitely seems so. And I mean, we even talked about it last week when one of uh, Princess Diana's close friends, who was a um, a person that was consulting on the show, she kind of took a step back because she felt like it wasn't being um, giving a compassionate approach to uh, this final chapter of her life. So it will be interesting. I mean, the crown has always come under fire for kind of taking liberties with the story and things like that. I mean, yes, it is. It's a TV show. So they have to kind of over dramatize certain things, but yes, but it feels like when people watch it, they feel like that's what actually happened. And even though yes. it really didn't. Yeah. It, that's, I think that's the most difficult thing is a lot of people will take this as truth. Mm -hmm. And so often it's not. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting. I wonder like what the, I don't know what it is, but what the permit situation is to shoot on that. Is that like Royal grounds that like the, that they had to get permission I, to shoot on that. And I, well, I don't know how that works. I, know. I think, well, Kensington palace is sort of made up of three parts and that you have the Kensington park, which I think mm -hmm. is just run by London parks, you know, okay. then you have the Kensington palace, historic Royal palace. Palaces section, and then you have Kensington Palace where the royals actually live. Yeah. So you have all three sections, and they are all within one another. So I'm not sure who approved that shoot, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. but I don't think they're well favored by the royal family right now. <laughs> I don't think so either. All right, well, let's continue talking about Diana because it is time to break down our royal rules. And to help us do that is Matt Robbins, executive producer of the CNN docuseries Diana. Take a look. In this last episode, you know, kind of takes a look at her death and how. She, even in her death, changed the way the royal family, uh, you know, she ma basically made the royal family change protocol and things like that. But before her death, I'd love to talk about her relationship with Charles at the time. And, you know, it seems like that they were almost in a better place before she died, right? Right. I mean, yeah, there are multiple interviewees in the series who talk about this kind of, I think this, this moment where she, <clears throat> for the first time, probably in her adult life is finding some semblance of peace and meaning you know that she she is through the divorce there is a clear path ahead um she kind of knows who she is i think in many ways and again without wishing to to pretend i know what she was seeing thinking feeling and the same goes for charles that's not my position here 
um, we do have a bunch of people that were close to them that that sort of said there really was a moment in time where they were communicating again in a much more productive way. Um, and so I think, you know, for obvious reasons, her death is just a, you know, a, a disaster on, on many, many levels. Um, but, you know, the, the functioning of that relationship and the idea that that relationship was, was growing stronger mm-hmm. is, is one of those many tragedies, you know. It really is. It really is. I mean, you know, a a few of the people in the documentary also say that Charles probably blamed himself for Diana's death. I can't imagine, you know, the heaviness of that uh, burden to bear for all these years. And, you know, can you kind of speak a little bit to that? And, you know, I mean, he's never come out and said that before, but I'm sure in the back of his mind, probably he that probably crossed his mind every now and then. I mean, yeah, I, I think, again, in making the series, I. I think you have to have empathy with all of your subjects when you're making something like this. And I think with Charles, I think certainly in episode one, we go into quite a lot of detail actually about what it's like to be Charles, you know, the, the pressure, the kind of weight on your shoulders of, of knowing that you will be king. Yeah. Um, I think by the end of the journey and the end of Diana's journey, I see him as grief stricken. You know, I see him as somebody who carried an enormous burden through um, her death and her funeral um, somebody who has to make impossible decisions. You know, he has been criticised for the for the fact that the boys walked alongside him. Um, but what do you do? You know, and how many of us would make the perfect call every time with with the eyes of the world upon us? So I I think I have a lot of empathy for him, and I I think that um, they don't necessarily want to do the job they're doing. These guys, and they are. You know, again, I think that's where I have more empathy than perhaps I would have done 10 or 20 years ago before we even made this series. I, I kind of look at them slightly differently now. I kind of feel like, you know, the pressure and the toll on their mental well-being is a factor that perhaps none of us really understood back then. Yeah, no. And we saw, I mean, them, I... as, we saw them as people that were able to do whatever they wanted. They were privileged people. They lived in this kind of gilded cage and actually... I think we look back now and it it looks very different, to be honest. The royal family was criticized for how they went about handling things. Obviously, you know, there were so many people outside of Buckingham Palace and they're like, where's the royal family? Even the flag wasn't at half staff. I mean, how did Diana's death really change the way that the royal family went about handling the public? I I think it does change everything. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it has been talked about a lot, but I think in the in the. I would say I'm more interested in the smaller ways that it changes mm-hmm. the family. I think that I don't believe there's some overnight transition where they hire the best PR firm in the world and, and change their methods of behavior. I think they are, they're a big institution. Um, but I think they probably learn for the first time just how emotionally connected people are to them. Mm-hmm. Um, they feel that surge of emotion, you know, just the way I think in in the final episode, we talk about the, the wave of applause that comes mm-hmm. through Westminster Abbey after the eulogy, um, that is a tidal wave of emotion and it would be impossible not to be affected by that yeah. as a human being. And I think mm-hmm. the, the smaller details, I think that all of us really noticed in the wake of Diane's death was this willingness to be slightly more emotional in language, um, slightly more personal in behavior, you know, that the idea that the queen and the family would talk about themselves in a way that they hadn't before mm-hmm. um, would be relatable to you and me in ways that they yeah. hadn't before. And certainly you see that through her sons. I think mm-hmm. they are, they're exemplars of the idea that 
it's okay to be yourself. You know, you right. don't, you're not just upholding an institution. You also have to be an individual. Mm-hmm. Do you think that like it was the, that the eulogy really kind of um, hit home to the queen? I, I mean, I, I can only speculate, but sure, I, I can't imagine being present in that moment would not dramatically affect you. You know, the, mm-hmm. the queen has a, a serious duty and I, and I, you know, it's impossible not to respect a woman who has done what she has done with her life. I mean, she's mm-hmm. a remarkable person, but to be in that moment and to not be overwhelmed um, and to not feel that, that, as I say, that wave of emotion, that mm-hmm. powerful feeling um, has to change you. Right. I mean, would you say the way that they handled Diana's death at the time was probably one of the biggest backlashes the royal family faced? Yes. I mean, I, I think there was, you know, I was living in London at the time and mm-hmm. I think there was an enormous sense of frustration and anger. I think, people, again, I think a lot of that may have been misplaced emotion. You know, mm-hmm. people just felt that something had been taken away from them. Yeah. Um, they needed an outlet for that feeling of, of sorrow and sadness and to see, you know, an institution not responding, not coming out and not talking to people um, very quickly became a kind of firestorm um, that I hadn't seen in my lifetime before. Um, and I don't think, you know, in previous generations of royal families, um, was there ever a moment like this? I can't, I can't think of one. Yeah. Um, so it really was a kind of unique set of circumstances. And I think people, um, what, what I take away from it as a, you know, as a documentary maker and someone who likes talking about history, um, I think what I take away from it is just the sense of there is an emotional connection. You can, you can love these royals. You can, you can feel that they are part of your life. Um, and I wonder if that point had kind of been missed in the past, you know, that mm-hmm. perhaps a death really forced everybody within that institution to kind of say, people really care. Yeah. You know, they really do care about us. Yeah. For everybody who hasn't watched the show, it's our, the, the uh, docuseries, it's absolutely fantastic. And, you know, Christine, we were kind of talking about at the top that, you know, we want to see a show that kind of shows Diana's strengths and what she kind of went through. And I feel like this docuseries really does focus on that. So if you haven't checked it out, all six episodes of, of Diana are on CNN on demand right now. So take a look when you get a chance, maybe something to binge yeah. over the Thanksgiving holiday. Yes. It was very well-rounded. It really was. It really was. It was a great, a great docuseries. All right. Well, moving on to our Royal History moment of the week. And it seems like Prince Charles could change his name when he becomes king. I found like this again was a a pretty interesting thing. I don't know if he'll actually do it, but he can if he wanted to. Right. It's so interesting. So when um, the sovereign ascends the throne, they can choose a regnal name Mm -hmm. and it can't, you know, becoming the sovereign is such a religious experience. So they kind of, because they're becoming this new person altogether, they can often take a new name. Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth declined. She said, Elizabeth is my name. That's Mm -hmm. what I'm going to be. But um, her father, George VI was actually Albert and Mm -hmm. his brother, Edward VIII was actually David. And that's kind of historically you do tend to take a new name. Um, But interestingly, both Elizabeth's and Queen Victoria did not. Um, So they were known by those names and they kind of kept those. So Prince Charles could become Charles III or he could become, or King Charles III, sorry, or he could be King Philip, King Arthur or King George because historically they can use any of their given names and those are his middle names. 
Oh, I wonder what he'll do. I feel like, I mean, we're so used to calling him Prince Charles. I feel like, it's <laughs> yes. just, you know, it would just be natural for us to call him King Charles. But yeah, he's, that is up to him whether he chooses to do so or not. So we'll see. Right. So int- it'll be really interesting to see such a, such a momentous time in history. Right. Definitely. All right. Before we wrap up, we have to check in on our royal kids. And Harry and Meghan revealed Archie's favorite song. And it seems probably this is a favorite amongst uh, little kids, I would imagine. <laughs> Definitely. This is such a sweet story. Mm-hmm. So Archie's one of Archie's favorite songs is Head, Shoulders, Knees and Toes. And anyone who's ever been around a toddler can uh, attest that that is really a popular tune. Yep. <laughs> um, Harry and Meghan were visiting um, a joint base, military base in New Jersey for to meet with military families ahead of or, you know, with, with Remembrance Day. And um, there is a significant Afghan refugee population on the base. So they asked if they could meet some of the children and families just to share their experience and maybe cheer them up. They um, snuck into one of the children's English language classes and kind of learned, you know, what they were learning and, you know, spoke with them. And were they all saying head, shoulders, knees and toes together? I think that's so lovely because it's so unifying. Music can be, you know, so unifying and especially during what must be a tremendously difficult time for these refugees and especially these children that must have been a really neat experience oh, definitely i would have loved to see harry and megan singing a head shoulders i'm sure they got some great rhythm um, yes, I'm well, sure. well christine thank you so much for running down royal all things royals with me thank you so much all right and we will definitely see you guys next week keep commenting keep subscribing listen to our podcast royally us and christine and i will see you guys next week bye